Welcome to GenCast, a sponsored podcast series brought to you by Genetic Engineering and Biotechnology News. I'm your host, Jeff Bukaliskis. Lab work can be an enjoyable and rewarding experience. It can also, at times, be frustrating and infuriating. Let's face it, we've all been there. But as good investigators, we strive to make our research more reproducible, repeatable, and translatable, a common theme that will permeate this three-episode podcast series. We'll discuss some ubiquitous techniques common to so many labs, but focus on some areas of these methodologies that are often overlooked, but can have a huge impact on recapitulating physiological conditions and the efficacy of your experiments. Let's take a listen into today's podcast, which will be an introduction to the importance of oxygen biology. Hello and welcome everyone to this new episode of GenCast. In this three-part series, we're going to dive into a fascinating aspect of cancer biology, the role of oxygen. And we'll get to more about that in just a moment. But first, I'd like to introduce our guest for today's podcast. It's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Krista Rantanen, the Director of Scientific Applications at the Baker Company. Krista has a PhD in cancer biology and has focused her research toward the effects of oxygen on cancer cells. Now, Krista posts on Twitter and LinkedIn pretty frequently under the name Dr. Ox for oxygen. And there you can also find her interview series called The Unexpected Questions, a series that interviews top level scientists about their work, but also about their life. So there's some really interesting stuff there. Make sure you check that out. Krista is also a visiting scientist at the Francis Crick Institute in London and a founding member of the Hapax EU community, a scientific community that focuses on oxygen biology throughout biomedical disciplines. Welcome, Krista. Nice to be chatting with you today. Thank you. Good to be here. And thank you You're for the introduction. Welcome. So, Krista, maybe you could tell the gen thank audience you. a little bit about what we're going to be discussing today. Yes, well, um, I would like to start talking about very simple stuff about cells and cell culture and draw your attention to the ways we could make better science with such just few easy tricks in the lab. So I do focus quite a bit on the importance of paying attention to the oxygen levels uh, the cells are subjected to. But this isn't only because that has been my personal passion throughout my career, but also because this is, in fact, one of the most common mistakes in biomedical research and one that is super easy to fix, actually. All right. Super easy <laughs> to fix is always a good thing. It piqued my interest. Tell, yeah, tell me a little mm -hmm, bit more about is. that. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so okay, let's let's start from the very beginning. Let's, let's think about a um, biomedical research lab, how it works, and, and from the point of like a... Uh, postdoc or, or similar. So first, of course, as everybody knows, one needs to find a topic that is worth studying, that's important. Something that is of importance, but something that is not studied by too many people. Then one needs to get very familiar with the topic, of course, its problematics and how solving this uh, problem would be of benefit. A feasible theory about the biology around this topic has to be created, and sophisticated experiments, of course, have to uh, be developed that test this theory. 
and you have to design them really super carefully. So once all this is done, one has to be able to convince a funding body, or maybe the PI, that this is worth studying. One has to write extensive grant applications to various instances, and if you're lucky, you get funding and then you can actually start the work. So my point here is that a lot, a lot of time and effort goes into research work even before any actual lab work ever is done. And, and time and effort is a very valuable thing indeed. Yeah, Kristen, I mean, being a former bench scientist myself for many years, I can really appreciate a lot of that. And I would add to that, you know, after all of that effort and setup, it's really pretty important to make sure that the mm -hmm. research then actually works, right? And that nothing will spoil the outcome. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yes, exactly. So it, it takes, you know, as we know, it takes so much to even be able to start the research, you wouldn't want them to fail because of some simple mistake made in the very beginning of the study, now would you? And yet, you know, what I've seen, this happens all the time. I probably did the same thing, you know. Um, it's simply by not paying enough attention to some of the very basic aspects of the research, we, we, we are at risk of producing data that is not repeatable by someone else independently, nor is it translatable. And that's that's a really big problem. So in your experience, you know, what are the mistakes that you see uh, are being made most often? And, and what do you think people can do to avoid them? Yeah, so <clears throat> I think um, the basic thing here is to really, really comprehend that all and everything we do in research aims for increasing understanding of how biology works. And we do this because we want to, at the end of the day, possibly find a cure. Uh, we might want to alleviate suffering from a disease or create treatments. But the point is we model these conditions by using cell lines or tissues or something that shows us how things are in diseases or in biology, in vivo. And then we try to fix this initially uh, with these model systems. So the thing is that if we unintentionally, of course, introduce changes in our model systems, like in our cell culture cells, we can no longer expect them to work as they do in vivo. Then they only work as we manipulated them to work. And this is the point where we lose the um, reproducibility, the translatability. We no longer mimic the in vivo situation. And this leads the results being skewed and, and uh, you, you know, you can't translate them. So when we think about basic cell culture model and everyone in, in, a, in a lab working, you know this, uh, routinely, we, we use cells, uh, we culture them every day, we don't even really think about it. Uh, it's almost an automation, right? And we get cell lines and other study materials, we culture and take care of them to the best of our ability, and then we use these cells or whatever uh, material in our research. Then we go on, we get results that we study and derive conclusions from, we present this data to our peers, we publish them, and we expect them to become a scientific dogma. 
And then often happens, someone somewhere notices that the results don't in fact hold up and that the conclusions are wrong. And then you find yourself having wasted enormous amounts of time, effort, blood, sweat and tears, and also money. So this all can be actually avoided like you like you yeah said. i mean i'd say that that's probably like one of researchers biggest fears right um you know to be able to yeah, yeah. to have all go through all that <laughs> and then find out it's wrong so yeah. what do you th- <laughs> yeah. what do you think goes wrong yes. in those scenarios so so you know oftentimes and again saying this is unintentional of course but oftentimes um we fail to consider where our study material in vivo resides, you, you know, what, what conditions they were, they were, you know, originally in and where they function optimally. And at the end of the day, cellular events are biochemical events and function correctly within a very narrow boundary. So cells do need, as we know, careful balance of pH, temperature, pressure, nutrients, whatever, to work as they are designed to work. And any deviations from these parameters causes, of course, changes as the cells fight to adjust to unfavorable conditions. And here we're getting to my favorite topic. Uh, One of these parameters that is often neglected is oxygen. Now, we know, everybody knows that most life forms need oxygen and of course cells do too. Um, The problem is that we neglect to consider what levels cells are used to when they reside in the tissue, what they are exposed to when in cell culture, and what molecular oxygen is like. Now, this is super important. Um, The air that we breathe, the ambient oxygen, has approximately 21% of oxygen. Fact. A cell culture incubator contains about 19.8% percent of oxygen with humidity and 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 everything else but guess what the best oxygenated cells in the body which would be uh, lung epithelial cells experience now that is about 14 percent so this this is the absolute biggest number that we see in vivo so that's quite different from 21 or 19 points yeah i mean it's pretty interesting you know i mean i've done a lot of cell culture myself and i think that you know one of the numbers we always see is you know the co2 levels right you know everything there and and i think it's probably recently really that oxygen has become so important um so what about Mm -hmm. other tissues you know i understand that uh most tissues reside around or under five percent of oxygen Yeah, you're correct. Um, Now, this is because um, the diffusion distance of oxygen from vasculature through cell layers to tissues is very short. And therefore, most cell types in the body reside in oxygen tension as low as 2 to 5%. And for instance, in the bone marrow, oxygen tension is close to anoxia, so no oxygen. So if, for instance, you wanted to study cartilage cells, what level should ex- the experiments be done in order to properly mimic their physiological functions? Now, cartilage cells in their normal physiological conditions would reside in about 1% to 2% of oxygen. So if you want to study chondrocytes, for instance, for understanding osteoarthritic processes, 
and you then grow cells in your regular incubator in ambient oxygen levels of 21, the cells do not respond as they would. Is there a a mechanistic basic? Sorry, try that again. Three, two, one. So is there a mechanistic basis for this? Yes, there is. um, And it's one that is very well known. Um, We understand that oxygen is a highly reactive molecule, causes oxidative stress on on everything, including biomolecules. Also, many other biological alterations occur when culturing cells under ambient oxygen conditions, particularly with respect to metabolism, uh, generating changes in cell proliferation and differentiation, among other things. And underlying all these discrepancies is the impact of so-called hypoxia-inducible factor 1 or HIF-1, which is degraded at oxygen levels over 5%. That's interesting. So what is the hypoxia-inducible factor then? I know it's a transcription factor that cells ubiquitously express, but how does it work uh, with respect to what you're talking about? Yeah, um, so HIF is very important in this process of understanding uh, why the continuously low oxygen levels throughout experimentation is crucial for successful experiments. Um, So HIF, hypoxia-inducible factor, uh, it is a transcription factor and it's constantly produced by cells, okay? Um, Why cells produce this constantly? Um, Because In an in vivo situation, in the tissue, HIV has the ability to induce cellular activities that supports cells living in low oxygen conditions, and it's needed there. Like said, in tissues, um, cells face 5% of oxygen or even lower. So HIV is needed there. So that is to say, in tissues where oxygen levels are, say, 2%, HIV is needed to drive metabolism, proliferation, etc. Now, HIF expression is controlled by a group of enzymes, which are called prolyl hydroxylases. And now here comes the trick. These enzymes are deoxygenases that need molecular oxygen to function. Okay, there has to be oxygen for these enzymes to function. And these enzymes regulate HIF. And how they regulate HIF, they direct HIF's degradation. So in short, what I'm saying here is that in real life, in tissues and in the cells within these tissues where there is a low oxygen situation, these enzymes cannot work. And then HIF is not degraded and it gets to do its business in promoting cell life in low oxygen tissue environment, as it should be. In contrast, in our hands, when we work in room air, in that ambient air, in high oxygen levels, HIV is degraded by these said enzymes and then cannot support cellular functions. Maybe, does that make so sense? So are you suggesting <laughs> that cells will die without HIF expression? No, <laughs> this, is the, this is the weird thing. They don't, unfortunately. And why I say unfortunately, because... In a way, in an experimental setting, it would be easier if they actually did die. 
because that would be a clear signal to us researchers that something has gone wrong. But no, they don't die. However, um, they rather, in that incubator of yours, they don't die, they adapt. And this is the very core problem I talked about just a moment ago. If cells are adjusted to an incorrect environment that we have created, and the cells just struggle to survive it, how believable is it that in this situation, it would mimic biology and at the end of the day, produce meaningful, reliable data. So Krista, how do you suggest maybe some members of the gen audience who are working in this area uh, to work around this oxygen aspect? So in my experience and many others' experience, it is very advisable to be using workstations that are incubators, yes, but also control oxygen levels and allow you to access the workspace with your hands. So effectively, they are glove boxes where your cells are safe and secure and in physiologically relevant environment. And of course, while this may sound like a bit of an investment, it actually ends up saving a lot of money when damage caused by too high oxygen concentrations can be avoided. All right. Well, that's a really great tip. So thanks for that. We appreciate that. Um, mm-hmm. And so you made a lot of really important points here today to be mindful that, you know, unphysiological conditions produce unphysiological data. Um, maybe you could, you know, in the last uh, few minutes here, tell our audience uh, what to expect from your next podcast episode and what we'll be talking about. Yes, really looking forward to to doing more. So continuing... Along the lines of this, I would like us to look at some of the latest and most intriguing research in the field of oxygen biology. Now, I very recently, in September 2022, hosted an event in Dublin called Hypox EU. Um, the uh, community that you mentioned earlier uh, in the beginning of this podcast, and we had some really amazing speakers there to talk about their work. For instance, how tumor collection and processing under physoxia, so physiological oxygen levels, uncovers highly relevant signaling networks and drug sensitivity. So this is the kind of stuff that I want to really take a deep dive in and and introduce to, to all of our listeners. So I think that's really worth listening to us again. I would agree. Uh, Krista, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Uh, It's been a great episode of GenCast. Thank you to the audience for listening and keep an eye out for our next episode coming up soon. Thanks for listening to GenCast. For genetic engineering and biotechnology news, I'm Jeff Pugaliskis.